Alrighty. Well, would you join me as we go to the Lord once again in prayer? Father, I thank you that you are worthy to be praised. Lord, there's so many things in this life that we deem worthy of praise. A good meal, a beautiful act of love, of sacrifice, a beautiful sunset, the beautiful leaves all around us changing, the warmth of the sun, all things that are signposts pointing to you. Your fingerprints are all over this creation. You are worthy to be praised. And I ask, Lord, that uh, you would use this time right now for your honor, that our hearts would honor you as we look at your word. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Well, I'd like to start off our time together with a question. We're going to be moving along in 1 Corinthians. We're going to be in chapter 2 now. So you could turn there. But I'll start with a question for you to think about. I'll tease it out for you. Um, what really impresses you in life? What impresses you? What really gets your attention? Maybe it's somebody with a lot of talent. Like, do you get impressed when you watch the Olympics? I, I do. Might not be impressed by the morality of the humans in the Olympics, but we can be impressed at what God has wired humans to be able to do physically. Are you impressed by really successful people? People who, whatever they touch, turns to gold, it seems. Are you impressed with people who always put their money where their mouth is? They're just always consistent. What leads you to be so impressed that you put your faith in something or someone? To be impressed by something is to have it make an impression on you. Something you see or hear moves you in some way so that you respond in a way that's fitting to what impressed you. So if a type of food impressed you and it really, really impressed you, what are you going to do? Praise it. Go back. Jacob was very impressed by the rail yard burger, right? And so he goes there and he told me about it. We went there, okay? So listen, we, we praise what impresses us. If an advertisement that you see about a tool impresses you, you might buy that tool. What impresses you? What impresses you about people? Somebody who's a good listener, maybe? Somebody who speaks kindly to you? Maybe somebody who doesn't fly off the handle when they're angry or hurt? They've got an even temper? What impresses you? Or how about the other way around? If you want to make a good impression on someone else, what do you do to try to impress that person? It might depend a little bit on who you're trying to impress. We all, I think, do a bit of impression management from time to time, depending on who we're trying to impress or not give the wrong impression. You know that expression? I don't want to give the wrong impression. You walk into the room a certain way, you know, oh man, maybe I gave the wrong impression. What do people think? I, 
I just barged into a prayer meeting and I had no idea and started talking. I didn't realize I didn't want to give the wrong impression that I'm rude. Um, maybe he did. We, we all are concerned to some degree or another about the impressions we make. Maybe the impression you want to give in life is, I don't give a rip about what people think. That's an impression that you want to communicate. All right? We all are seeking to impress in some way or another. And ultimately, it's what God thinks that really matters. He knows the heart. But the reason I'm bringing this up is because in the ancient city of Corinth that Paul is writing his letter to, the traveling speakers of the day, and we've talked a lot about these guys, the sophists, they would roll into town and they were obsessed with impression management. Everything they did was to impress people. More than anything, they wanted people to be impressed by the way that they dressed, by their looks, by the, how much money they had, and above all, by their impressive speaking abilities about anything that you wanted them to speak about. They wanted to be so impressive that parents would say, how much for my son to study under you and become impressive, hopefully, like you? How much? And the more impressive the speaker, the more the dollars that they could say. You want to be my disciple? They didn't say, take up your cross and follow me. They said, take out your wallet and pour out the cash. They wanted to make an impression when they rolled into town so that their fame would outlive them, that their book deals would be selling for, you know, generations to come. And then you got the Apostle Paul that rolls into town. And we talked about this a few weeks ago. This guy looked completely different than them. Instead of calling these people his disciples, he calls his followers brothers and sisters. And they're not an impressive bunch. There's like a slave um, with them, uh, Onesimus, and others. I mean, it's just such an opposite, upside-down way of doing things. And, and Paul, even the way he preaches, and that's what we're going to see today... Last week we looked at how the group around him, Jesus' team, was not the type of people you'd expect. <clears throat> the foolish, not the, not the impressive people in society, but that they had been given Christ. And so now we're going to see that even Paul himself went out of his way to not be the type of preacher that they would have been used to seeing. So look at this, Second, or 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that the result of it all, your faith, your trust, wouldn't rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. 
So that's the passage we're looking at this morning. Here's the main point. This is what, what's Paul trying to say here. This is if you boil it all down, he's saying this. He preached, Paul preached Christ in weakness so that faith in Christ would rest on God's power and not the preacher's performance. So Paul preached Christ in a posture of weakness so that people's faith in Christ would rest not on power, Paul's power, his performance, but on God's power. So we'll unpack it in three steps. First, we're going to look at the way Paul preached. He goes at great length to describe it. Point two, we'll look at the message he preached. And then third, we're going to look at the result of Paul's preaching. So, first, the way Paul preached. Here in these verses, he explains two different times how he didn't preach and how he did preach. I didn't go, I didn't preach this way, but I preached this way. I didn't preach this way, but I preached this way. So that's the first thing we're going to look at. In verse 1, he says, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom, as I proclaim to you the testimony about God. Now, the very the Greek words, Paul's not writing in English, he's writing in Greek, and the Greek words he uses here for eloquence and human wisdom were words very closely related to what the popular traveling speakers of Paul's day would do. So they're, they're careful words that Words Paul's using, I, he's basically saying, I didn't do that. What's that? That is what they do. They speak with eloquence and wisdom, human wisdom. Now Paul is going to go on in the next verses and say, I did speak a wisdom. It's the wisdom of God. But he's saying, I didn't do what they do. They use, and he uses two Greek words that are eloquence and human wisdom. I didn't do what those traveling speakers do. I didn't come that way. Their goal is to impress you with incredible rhetorical performances and big words and fancy language and powerful voices. My friend Brian and I, one of the things we had to do in seminary was read. The name of the book just popped right out of my head. It was this ancient primer, I think by Herodotus or something, by by an ancient sophist, basically. And it was this little primer. We didn't have to read the whole thing, but we had to read a few chapters of it. Basically describing how to be a sophist. How are you going to be one of these guys? And it was remarkable. I mean, so many gimmicks that people even use today um, about how to be an impressive speaker. Don't preach on something unpopular. Make sure it's popular. Don't do this, but do this. Make sure everything they did... Every move of their hands. Like, I kind of flopped my hands around in random ways. Like, they, they, everything they did was, like, very, they thought about everything. Every bit of their posture, everything was very careful. And Paul says, I, I didn't do that. My message in preaching were not with wise and impressive, persuasive words. Now, Paul doesn't mean here that he's preaching foolish nonsense. Okay, in Acts 18, verse 19, for example, we read this. Paul went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. Paul reasoned, okay? He's not spitting nonsense. He's trying to persuade people to trust in Jesus. But the words he's using here are very carefully chosen. It's a different word than reason. He's, he's, he's not, he's saying, I just, I didn't do what 
the sophists, did. They sought to manipulate people by the power of their performance and by the skill of their trade. But he sought to testify to people about what God had done through Jesus. Now, let's look at the way Paul did preach. He says he preached, verse 3, with weakness and with great fear and in trembling. And in verse 4, his words were accompanied by a demonstration of the Spirit of God and the Spirit's power. What does he mean by weakness here? Well, I think Paul, remember, writes four letters to Corinthian, to the Corinthian church. We only have two of them. We have the second letter and the fourth letter, which we call one and two. Kind of weird. <laughs> but we have two of these letters. And in 2 Corinthians, the second letter that we have, the fourth letter he wrote, uh, Paul writes in chapter 10, verse 10, um, about and, and following that whole section, he explains about his weakness. He boasts, actually, in his weakness. And we'll, we'll actually, that's our verse of the month. We'll close with that. Paul says he's been in jail countless times. That wasn't really a, an impressive thing. Like, usually um, usually when the sophists would roll into, t into town, like, um, you ever walk into somebody's office, I'm not saying this is a bad thing, but they have all their degrees on the wall, right? You know? um, and it's like, well, I've been to Harvard, and I've been to Yale, and I've been to Yale. Okay, um, the sophists were like that. I studied under this person. I studied. Paul would roll into town. He's like, I've been to that jail, and I've been to that jail, and I've been to that jail, and I was shipwrecked there, and I was beaten there, and the Romans beat me up there. And I was like, whoa. Like, those are the things he, because he's boasting in his weakness, the things that make, jail makes you weak, right? You're powerless in jail. You can't escape. And so... For Jesus, he was beaten. And he goes into great detail on top of that. And he's not a powerful speaker in any of the ways that the culture valued. His whole life and demeanor had a partic particularly humble and worshipful aura about it. Paul smelled like fear and trembling. And that's what he says there. That would have been utterly foreign to the Corinthians who were used to public speakers making very much of themselves and doing everything they could to draw attention to themselves. In the Bible, the words fear and trembling have to do with having a reverent, awe-filled attitude of worship towards God in everything we do. So in Philippians chapter 2, verses 11 to 12, for example, Paul will write to that church, the Philippian church, he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who's at work in you. In Psalms, the Old Testament, chapter 2, verse 10, all the kings and nations of the earth, listen up, O earth, says the psalmist, they're called to serve the Lord and bow down before the future messianic king, do homage to him with fear and rejoice under his rule with trembling. That's where this language is coming from. When the Messiah shows up, all the ends of the earth are to fear and tremble before him in reverence and in awe of who he is as the creator of everything and as the king. And Paul views himself as fulfilling Psalm 2's call in his own life. Here's Paul, a Jewish rabbi, rejoicing 
and Jesus with fear and trembling as he tries to make Jesus known before the kings of all the nations, saying, Bow to the king, O Caesar. Bow to Jesus. He's in awe of Jesus, not in all people. And instead of trying to get people to tremble in fear and in awe of him, Paul wants people to join him in rejoicing and trembling at Jesus and being in awe of Jesus. He doesn't want you to be impressed by who he is, but by who Jesus is. He doesn't want people to walk away from his sermon saying, that was an amazing preacher. He wants to go out of his way to avoid that. Because we're all tempted to do that. I've done that in my life. Man, that guy could, was so helpful. And I just love this man's teaching and his books. And Paul says, it's not wrong to be influenced by people. We're all influenced by people. But Paul wants people to be so touched by his ministry that they walk away saying, Christ is amazing. I want to follow Jesus. I want to follow him like Paul did. And so his preaching is not marked by impressive performances, but by a demonstration of the Spirit and of the Spirit's power. Paul talks about this demonstration at length in another letter that he writes to the Thessalonian church. I think this is helpful to go there for a second and look at how he describes what this power looks like. 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 4 to 5, Paul writes this. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you, not simply with words, but also with power. And then he explains it. With the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. And in Thessalonians 2, verse 13, he writes... For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from it, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. So the powerful work of the spirit of God in Thessalonica, what is this demonstration of the spirit's power in a different church, the church of Thessalonica? People get saved and their lives change. That's the demonstration of the Spirit's power here. You can see that back in chapter 1, verse 18 of 1 Corinthians, if you want to glance back there. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. So what Paul is saying is, when he preached about Jesus, the power of God showed up. What did that look like? It looked like people saying, though the cross looks foolish to the world, it looks like life and wisdom to me. I'm going to embrace it. That is the power of God at work. When Jews and Gentiles alike bow down before the risen King Jesus and start to worship him and follow him, and so Paul says, you want to know what my style is when I roll into town? I preach. And people follow Jesus. The power of God shows up. Friends, that's not something we can create. 
But it's not something we can boast about. We want to see that happen in our midst and in every church in this globe. That the word is preached and that people are touched by Jesus and want to follow Jesus. So let's stop for a minute before we move on to look at the message Paul preached. just want to make a couple observations for us just about Paul's way of preaching and how that might relate to ways of preaching and teaching nowadays. And I want to be careful because God knows the hearts of preachers and of teachers and he knows my heart. He knows our hearts better than we do. But in our, in our culture, in our day and age, the world of public speakers and intellectuals and talking heads is more pervasive than ever. I mean, can you imagine what the ancient sophists would have done with the internet? It <laughs> was social media. I mean, my goodness. Anywhere you look online, you see talking people trying to impress others with their message, with their personality, with their performance. There's ways that are socially accepted methods to impress people and to make them more likely to listen to the message. Somebody clicks on a video. How do you catch their attention in 10 seconds? Because they're going to be on to the next video of their attention. I mean, there's ways to do this. People spend lifetimes studying these things now. Now, one way is how you dress. Now, there are many pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers who dress like those that they're trying to attract. To their church. So they dress like a celebrity because they want to attract celebrities to their church, or like a rock star, or like a cowboy, or like a politician. Now, that's not wrong to try to dress like your culture. Like I, I, The goal should be dressed in a way that doesn't distract. I was talking about this earlier. Like, you know, Polly tries to help me with this, but if I come up here and my hair is all which way, so you're like, oh my gosh, what did you do? And you can only, all you can think about is how distracting, you know, or my, my shirt's unbuttoned, or I've got, whatever it is, we, we don't want to draw attention to ourselves by the way we dress, whether it's by trying to impress you with, wow, Joel is looking sharp today, or however it is, we, we want not the focus to be on ourselves, but on the word, okay? But man, there are many, many people who would say, no, if you're trying to win them, if you're trying to reach celebrities, you've got to dress like celebrities. You've got to act like celebrities. You've got to be on the in. You've got to impress with the dress. There's other socially accepted methods of trying to impress. Really loud sound. Really bright lights. Focused on the speaker. And not on anyone else. Talks that are filled with a steady stream of shareable, tweetable quotes that are carefully crafted to be tweeted and get out on the internet. There are memes floating around. And these, these, a lot of thought is sometimes put into how can I exactly, you know, this, I want this to be a tweet that's shared and goes viral or whatever. How can I go viral? With this message. And viral just means a media post explodes. Alright? 
Sometimes sermons are carefully crafted like short TED Talks led by thought leaders rather than truth heralded by ambassadors of God's King. And the goal, of course, for many is to be helpful and to point people to Jesus. And so I'm not saying this is all bad or clever tweets are bad. I, I, wanna, I don't want to throw everybody under the bus because they're not like me. I mean, we're all trying, I think we would say we're trying to honor Jesus. I'm just saying we have to be really careful with the methods we use to get the word about Jesus out there. And I think Paul would say, be very, very careful that you and your efforts to make a name for Jesus don't build a name for yourself. So many pastors in our day and age are trying to use their churches, their media influence to build a bigger and bigger platform for their church so that they can make Jesus famous to the ends of the earth. But all of a sudden, they find themselves standing on an empire they built and just trying to keep it afloat and doing impression management. And it's such a dangerous thing because what happens when you everybody's shown to be sinners because they are? You hide it. You cover it. You don't want it to show up. No, preach a big Jesus. Let him be the one to impress us all. Keep coming back to him. So what's Paul's message? Well, we've already said it. He came with weakness, fear, and trembling, and he came with one message. Jesus. Jesus died for sinners. The message he preached. This is the second point this morning. Listen to the last clause in verse 1. He says, I proclaim to you the testimony about or the testimony of God. So there's a testimony or a witness about God that Paul is testifying to. He describes it back in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 5 to 6. Maybe you remember what he said back there, but you can look back. He says, in him, in Jesus, you have been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. So how did God confirm that this testimony was real? By enriching the Corinthians with speech and knowledge about Jesus. Paul testified about Jesus and they came to know him. That was the witness, the testimony that Paul is sharing everywhere he goes. Jesus came, Jesus died, Jesus rose again. And God confirms this testimony by using this message to, to save sinners. Now... Paul describes this message this way in verse 2. I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Nothing except Jesus and him crucified. The sophists who would roll into town, these wise speakers, they would make it their goal to be experts about everything. Like They could talk about anything you wanted. All right? Paul comes to town talking about one thing. I knew nothing among you except Jesus. Now, does that mean that Paul didn't know who the emperor of Rome was? I didn't know anything there. Who's the emperor? I, does it mean that Paul didn't have any thoughts about politics or any thoughts about, you know, healthier ways to eat or live? Um, I, I don't think that's what Paul is 
saying here that he didn't have any thoughts about anything else except Jesus. I knew nothing. But I, I think what he's saying is while he was with this church, he sought only to know and make known Jesus and his cross. Doesn't mean It also doesn't mean that he just robotically talked about the same thing over and over and over again, like playing one note on the piano. Jesus Christ and him crucified, Jesus Christ and him. Like, is that what Paul means? I don't think so. We see an example of what Paul does with the Corinthians in his letter. He applies Jesus Christ and him crucified to all of the various issues that they are wrestling with. Dealing with church leaders and those issues. Issues of sexual immorality. Issues of eating meat sacrificed to idols and participating in the worship of demons. Issues of the resurrection. All of it connects in some way to Jesus and the cross in a Christ-centered way of living. So Paul comes into town with Jesus Christ and him crucified and that good news and that message, and he uses it like a diamond with multifaceted, you know how a diamond has lots of different faces? And he can turn that and apply it to any situation that the Corinthians are in. You know? You guys are struggling with feeling better than other people, you know, in your church. You know what the cross says? The cross says you're all sinners. You all deserved God's wrath, God's punishment, and yet you get forgiveness. The, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. You guys are, you know, looking for impressive church leaders. Let me tell you about one church leader, Jesus, the head of the church. I want you to be impressed by him. That's what he's really focusing on here in this section. But it all connects to the gospel. Why is Jesus the king? Because he died and rose for us. Jesus Christ and him crucified. Is the heartbeat, but it's not the only thing he says. It just it's the it's the lens through which his entire ministry is conducted, through how he views the whole Christian life. It's not just about how you get saved, but how you live as well. And this is the last thing we'll look at. What was the result of Paul's preaching as seen in the lives of the Corinthians after he left? So what's the result of this type of Message and this way of preaching. Verse 5 So that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. If the Corinthians' faith, if their trust in Jesus was grounded in the powerful performance and personality of the Apostle Paul, then their faith would only be as strong as the power of the Paul's performance which he went out of his way to make not very impressive by the world's standards. But if they were impressed by his power and his performance, then as soon as somebody more impressive than Paul showed up, their faith would shift to that person. Well, he sounds better than Paul, and Paul talks about this crucified guy. He talks about the path to wealth and power and um, he talks about the path to weakness, and he looks pretty messed up. And he's been to jail a lot, and this guy's got a bunch of houses and cars and whatever, you know, <laughs> not the camels. Um, and so I'll follow him. But if it was not Paul's personality, 
Paul's person, Paul's repertoire that led them to faith, but if it was truly the power of God that they were convinced by and the person of Jesus, then their faith doesn't rest on Paul. Paul can die, and he did. But Jesus is the same yesterday and today and forever. So that your faith would rest on God's power, says Paul. That's the purpose of why he went out of his way to not be, not try to be shabazzy. <laughs> to, I don't know if that's even a word. But Paul tried not to make up, make a huge performance when he came to town. And to get everybody hyped up to make a decision for Jesus. So that in the moment of passion, they commit to Christ. No, Paul, Paul wasn't about hype. Paul was about commitment to Christ. And he just by an open statement of the truth, he just bore testimony to Jesus and to what he did and trusted God to save the weak and the foolish of this world and to make them wise through Christ. One of the key Bible verses that I believe Paul had flying like a banner over his ministry was from Zechariah. In Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6, the Lord is speaking to the prophet about how, how he is going to build his end-time temple, which we'll talk about in 1 Corinthians 6. Paul views himself as a temple builder. The church of God is the temple of God in 1 Corinthians 6, and Paul is contributing to the building of the temple by his ministry. And as people get saved, they become bricks in that end-time temple where the Spirit of God dwells. Your body, says Paul, plural, your plural body, the church body, is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so, Zechariah says about this work, he says, the temple building is not by might and not by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. So Zechariah is predicting this future temple building and that's what Paul is seeing himself doing. And he's saying, not by might, not by power, not by my cleverness, not by my impressiveness, but by the Spirit of God, by the power of the Spirit at work. So let me summarize now the main point this morning. Paul preached Christ in weakness so that faith in Christ would rest on God's power and not on the preacher's performance. So let's conclude with some application for us. All right? Paul believed with all his heart that the way, you, the way for you to experience the power of God in your life is for you to embrace the testimony about the cross of Jesus. To give the message of the cross full, unrestricted access to your mind and to your heart. So, I want you right now, if you would, your mind's... I open your arms to embrace the message of the cross. And we're going to see three things that the cross of Jesus says. And it help, if it helps you, we've got a cross on the wall. We're going to be cross-centered Christians because of Christ. The first thing the cross says is that you and I, we are sinners. Jesus didn't come to earth to die on the cross to rescue great all-around people. The reason Jesus came to die is because we are sinful. We have rejected God in big and little ways. 
and as humanity, we have brought his curse down upon us. This is the plight of humanity. We are a world groaning under curse. It was not to be this way. Everyone hurts other people. Sometimes we don't even mean it and we still hurt people. People are selfish. I'm selfish. People are rude. I can be rude. People are angry. I have anger in my life. And on the cross, on a tree, what God does is he lifts high before the world the seriousness of the ancient tree that presents us with a choice. Define good and evil apart from God. My way, become like God, knowing good and evil, calling the shots for yourself. This is a choice that each one of us has to make, just like Adam and Eve. Because of Adam and Eve, we all choose to define good and evil our own way, apart from the Spirit of God. And on the cross, God lifts high before the world the seriousness of sin with a tree. As Adam and Eve ate, everyone dies. And there is not a more powerful image of someone dying under the curse on humanity than to die hanging on what brought that curse into the world. To die on a tree. Cursed is anyone hung on a tree. That goes straight back to Genesis. To be cursed for the sin of rejecting God, the very God who gives life and breath and everything. The cross stares us in the face and says, sin is serious. Your sin is serious. My sin is serious. Disobeying God is serious. He made us. At the cross, the ground is level. There's no person higher than another person before the cross. There's no one better. All have sinned and fallen short of honoring God perfectly. There is none righteous, no, not one, except for Jesus. And he is hanging there for humanity, taking the curse of the tree so that we might have access to another tree, the tree of life. The cross becomes a tree of life. Mm -hmm. To all who run to Jesus. The cross says this is what justice requires for sin. Which is the second thing. So the cross says you are a sinner. And the cross says God is a just judge. God does not sweep sin under the rug and say oh it's okay. Do better next time. The cross shows God doesn't tolerate sin. He himself deals with it. The judge takes the curse on himself. The one who created humanity puts himself on the cursed tree. Jesus shows us the justice of God. He will deal with human sin. On the cross, our king, our representative, our new and final Adam comes again. And he takes the curse of the tree for us all. That we may experience the blessing of eternal life beyond the grave. If we trust him. And don't reject his offer of forgiveness and pardon. 
The cross says you're a sinner. The cross says God is a good judge. He's a fair judge. He will judge sin. He doesn't say it's okay. And then the third thing the cross says is that God loves you. The cross shows us God is love. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and gave his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation is straight out of the Old Testament. It's the word kelasterion, mercy seat. The mercy seat was on the top of the Ark of the Covenant, where the sacrifice would be made once a year by the high priest on the Day of Atonement. As one goat would run out into the wilderness bearing the sins of the people, cleansing them, another goat would die for the sins of the people. Two powerful images made by the high priest of Israel. And our high priest has become our atonement seat. He is the one who has made peace through his cross. This is love. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person. Someone might die, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, the anointed king died for us. Christ died for us. And so I just want to close with a question to you. Have you embraced the cross in your life? Have you embraced the cross and what it says about your sin it's serious and what it says about God he is a just judge he will punish sin and what does it says about his love that he himself would pay the penalty for our own, our rejection of him whether it's big or small God has paid the penalty through Christ. It's an amazing, amazing truth. And because of the cross, we can find forgiveness and freedom. We don't have to make other people pay for their sins because Jesus can set us free. Jesus paid for sins. We don't have to make people pay. We can pray that they come to know him. For all of us, all of us will stand before the judgment seat of God. The penalty of rejecting God is life without him. It's a fitting penalty when we reject the king. But he has made a way for us to have peace with him through the cross. And so my prayer is that you have come to know the Lord Jesus Christ in your own life. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the Apostle Paul for the message of the cross, Lord, there is so much more that we could say. I just pray that each one of us would resolve to know Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That we would use the cross as a lens through which we view you and through which we view our sin 
and through which we review our salvation. May we make the cross the defining um, mark of your love for us and not how we feel on any given day about our circumstances or about what we're going through. May we say, God loves me. Look at the cross. If he would do that, how much more will he raise this body one day and bring me into new creation rest? Help us, Lord, to make the cross the benchmark of your love for us. And I pray that you would stir our hearts with greater love for Jesus now as we go to the table and remember what he did. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.